0: This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code LESSDUMB at checkout. A better web starts with your website. This episode is also brought to you by the great courses who believes that learning doesn't stop after you finish school offering engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors and experts who are passionate and knowledgeable, making the topics that they explain fascinating and wonderful, with more than 500 courses on many subjects, including science, history, literature, music, and more, available as DVDs, audio CDs, or streaming online to any device. For a limited time, listeners of you are not so smart can get 80% off behavioral economics when psychology and economics collide. Just go to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. That's thegreatcourses.com slash smart. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart podcast, episode 32, in between, episode six. This is an in between episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, which means that it's going to be a bit different from a normal episode. I'm out and about doing lectures right now, but the next episode will be a regular episode featuring Will Store, author of The Unpersuadables in uh, the UK that's known as The Heretics. It's a book in which he writes about his adventures with people who are part of fringe groups, people who believe in things that most other people do not, like UFO abduction, Holocaust denial, past lives and reincarnations, things like that. And our other guest will be Jim Alcock, a psychologist who studies belief itself, the biological underpinnings and the behavioral antecedents. Um, it's going to be a great episode. So many people have written to me asking for an episode about belief, and I really wanted to make it a special episode that wasn't um, that wasn't sort of uh, antagonistic or weird or simple or, uh, would come at it from, a, from a usual perspective and that's what it's going to be like. So, uh, this episode though, we are going to explore something else, something that if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know, that I love and that is cookies. Yes. Cookies. Cookies are a big part of the science of self-delusion. That's where the cookie segment originally came from. And um, I thought it would be nice to talk about the psychological investigation of how we make decisions, what causes our behaviors, and so on from the perspective of the power of the cookie. And in this episode, I'm going to tell you about four studies in psychology that used cookies to better understand human nature. So uh, let's, let's explore, shall we? Here we go. In 2005, a team of psychologists made a group of college students feel like scum. The researchers invited the undergraduates into their lab and asked them to just hang out for a while and get to know one another. The setting was designed to simulate a casual meet and greet atmosphere, like at a reception or an office Christmas party, something like that, you know, the sort of thing that never really feels all that casual. The students divided into same-sex clusters of about six people each, and they chatted for about 20 minutes using conversation starters provided by the researchers. They asked each other things like, Where are you from? And what is your major? And if you could travel anywhere in the world, where would you go? Now, before the study, the researchers had asked all of these people to really make an effort to try to remember the other people's names during this hangout portion. And this was important because the next task was to move into a room, sit alone, and then each person write down the names of two people that they had just met at the fake party with whom they would like to be partnered for the rest of the study. So the researchers noted all of these responses, and then they asked the students to sit down and wait to be called. And then while they waited, the researchers took all of their answers and threw them in the trash. <laughs> so these researchers they then asked these young men and women to proceed to the next stage of the activity in which the subjects would learn what sort of an impression they had made on their new acquaintances at the meet and greet and this this is where things got funky the scientists then took every person aside and individually told them something and they randomly selected the people that they would tell this and some people were told this exact quote Everyone chose you as someone they'd like to work with. And to keep each person in this wanted group isolated, the researchers also told each one of these people that the groups were already too big, and even though everybody wants to work with you, you're going to have to work alone, I'm sorry. So students in this wanted group proceeded to the next task, with a spring in their step, their hearts filled with moonbeams and fireworks. The scientists then individually told a group of other people, they took them aside and said this exact quote, I hate to tell you this, but no one chose you as someone they wanted to work with. (laughs) So believing that absolutely no one wanted to hang out with them, people in this group, they then learned they would also have to work by themselves. Punched in the soul, their self-esteem dripping with inky sludge, the people in this unwanted group proceeded to the main task with everybody else. And this main task, this is uh, the whole point of going through all of this, as far as the students knew, was to sit in front of a bowl containing 35 mini chocolate chip cookies and judge those cookies on taste, smell, and texture. The subjects, they learned they could eat as many as they wanted while filling out a form commonly used in corporate taste tests. And the researchers left them alone with these cookies for 10 minutes. Now this was the actual experiment, you see, measuring cookie consumption based on social acceptance. How many cookies would the wanted people eat, and how would their behavior differ from that of the unwanted? Well, if you've had much contact with human beings, and especially if you've ever felt the icy embrace of being left out of the party or getting picked last in dodgeball or something like that, your hypothesis is probably the same as the one put forth by the psychologists. They predicted the rejects would gorge themselves. And indeed they did. On average, the rejects ate twice as many cookies as the popular people. It was the same setting, same work, similar students sitting alone in front of scrumptious cookies. But in their heads, they were on different planets. The uh, For those on the sunny planet, with the double rainbow sky, the cookies were easy to resist. But those on the rocky, lifeless world, where the forgotten go to fade away, they found it more difficult to stay their hands when their desire to reach into the cookie bowl surfaced. Why did the rejected group feel motivated to keep mushing cookies into their sad faces? Why is it, as explained by the scientists in the study, that social exclusion impairs self-regulation? Well, the answer has to do with something psychologists now call ego depletion. And you would be surprised to learn how many things can cause it and how often you feel it and how much life really depends on. It. So before we talk about ego depletion and its origins, let's uh, first talk about just the word ego. OK, this, this means we have to talk about Freud for a second. Now, unlike Einstein in physics, who's still you know greatly regarded and greatly revered um, and is considered, you know, a lot of things are built on what he discovered and, and worked out and what he collaborated with others to um, to figure out. When it comes to Freud, Freud is more relegated to his quirky place in history he's more considered an early thinker who had a lot of interesting ideas most of them uh, have not been supported by the research and a lot of people actually look at him as a philosopher now as a someone who had this interesting philosophy about people but uh, not so much a psychologist not so much a scientist in the sense that modern psychologists attempt to be now despite his fame uh, despite his popularity In the late 1800s when he was doing his work, it was not a very good time to be needing mental or physical care. Medical school was mostly, you know, anatomy and physiology and you researched the classics. You drew the insides of things and you wonder what they did. You learned about where the heart is and how to amputate a leg and um, what Plato had to say about different things. Pretty much everything useful that doctors know today had really yet to be discovered or understood. For instance, do you have a sore throat? Well, that's no problem. How about tie some peppered bacon around your neck? You have a hernia? Okay, lie down so you can anally absorb a little tobacco smoke. It was the Wild West of science and medicine, and especially the the science and medicine of the mind. I mean, there was still debate over, should you wash your hands uh, after you are dealing with a corpse, right before you uh, put your hands into the body of a woman about to give birth? So... Freud is in this world, and in this world, that's when he developed his idea of the agencies of the mind, das S, das Ich, and das Über Ich, the It, the I, and the Over I, or what would famously become known in the English world as the Id, the Ego, and the superego. In Freud's view, the Id was the primal part of the brain that resides in the unconscious and always seeks pleasure while avoiding uncomfortable situations. The Ego is the realistic part of the mind, it's the one that can considers the consequences of punching someone in the face uh, if they steal one of your French fries. And the ego, it usually loses its battles with the id in a a lot of situations over control of the mind. And if it ever does lose a battle with the id, the superego will come in and it will tower over the entire system and shake its metaphorical head in disgust. No, don't do that. So this, Freud thought, forced the ego to take control or either hide behind its denial and rationalization while the superego pounded around in their head. So um, that's where those defense mechanisms come from. So you can avoid the harsh judgment of the superego from which morals and cultural norms exert their influence. Of course, none of this is true, but it is a good um, philosophical viewpoint on how people work. It's a nice metaphorical uh, narrative flowery way to see the mind. But what's fun about any kind of research is that sometimes you'll find things, sometimes you'll produce evidence that sort of lines up with these old ways of seeing things, just as you would in physics, maybe find something that lined up with something that the ancient Greeks believed about atoms or fire or light or the way the, the stars rotate and move in the sky, that sort of thing. Well, that sort of thing also happens in psychology. And this is what was discovered by Roy Baumeister. In the 1990s, Baumeister and his colleagues, they spent a lot of time researching self-regulation through the careful application of chocolate. See, self-regulation is a very important part of being a person. Remember from... Um, earlier episodes, we talk about how you're the unreliable narrator in the epic story of your past, present, and future. You have a sense that there is a boundary between you and all the other atoms around you, a sense of being a separate entity and not just a bag of organs and cells and molecules that flopped out of the sea 530 million years ago. That sense of self, it cascades into a variety of other notions about your body and your mind. And this is called volition, the Feeling of free will that provides you with the belief that you are in control of your decisions and choices. Volition makes you feel responsible for your actions both before and after they occur. Ballmeister, in his research that he's conducted over about 20 years now, has really pinpointed that this sense of volition, this sense of self-control, it's something that can be manipulated. In 1998, Ballmeister conducted a a study with his colleagues in which he asked participants to arrive at the location where the study was being conducted with an empty stomach. He told them to all skip a meal before they come to do the research. So all these people, very hungry, their, their bellies empty and grumbly and rumbly, they were led one at a time into a room with an oven that had just finished baking delicious sweet chocolate chip cookies. And then they had each person sit down in front of two foods. On one side, a stack of these delicious, beautiful chocolate chip cookies stacked really high. And then over on the other side, a lone bowl of radishes. The subjects did not know that they had been divided into several groups and that each group was going to be asked something different. So this is what they were asked. (laughs) The first group was told, we want you to only eat these radishes. Just ignore the, uh, the cookies, okay? And take note of all the sensations that you're, you're feeling for follow-up questions we're going to ask you tomorrow. Another group was told, all right, look, ignore the radishes and just eat these cookies. And then a final group was told neither thing because they didn't have any cookies or anything in front of them at all. This is the control group. They aren't facing any kind of weird decision about what you can and can't eat. The psychologists then leave all of these people in the testing room for five minutes so they can sort of sit there and ponder what they're getting into. And then the researchers, they return with a questionnaire about mood. So according to Baumeister, who wrote about all this research in his book, Willpower, which was written with the help of John Turney, they write about how the typical radish eater, the person who is told, don't eat those cookies. They would stare at those cookies. They would peer at them with these cold cold eyes like a gunfighter at high noon. Some even went so far as to grab the cookies and put them up to their noses and mm, smell them. If they couldn't have a taste, they could at least take a long, deep drag on the aroma. Still, these people, this, this radish eating group, they stuck to the rules. Not a single person ate a cookie, but not without, you know, some anguish. The next group, the subjects in the, in the group that did not have to eat the radishes, the ones that were told they could uh, eat the cookies, and the other group that was uh, not told anything, all of these people then move on to a second task. And this task is to sit down and solve puzzles. All each person has to do is trace a geometric figure without lifting his or her pencil or retracing any lines. Each subject is told they can take as long as they like to solve these puzzles. But what they're not told is that it's impossible to solve these puzzles. And they had made these little, uh, these little drawing experiments, these little uh, tracing experiments, impossible to actually do. Because the real thing that they're trying to study here is how long will a person attempt to do this before they give up completely? So, on average, the people left out of the room with the radishes and the cookies... These people, they worked for about 20 minutes before admitting defeat. The people who were allowed to eat those delicious cookies, they persevered for about 19 minutes. But the people who were told, don't eat those cookies, they were stuck with these radishes, and they had to only eat the radishes and think about how they they tasted while looking at the cookies that they are not allowed to have. And they have an empty stomach, and they're in a room filled with all these delicious chocolate fumes, and this delicious confection is beckoning to them, and they have to fight off all their impulses to gobble them up. They quit. After eight minutes. So. Ballmeister looked at all this and he said, hmm, quote, resisting temptation seems to have produced a psychic cost, end quote. Somehow, the evidence suggests that the more you restrain that which Freud would have called your id, the more difficult it becomes to restrain it. Freud, now probably, he would have said that the uh, the more your ego fought the id, the more it uh, did battle with it, the more that it had to hold the id down, then the more tired and exhausted and weak your ego became. So, one of these weird instances where things seem to line up with uh, old uh, superseded scientific theories, with a nod and a wink, Baumeister names this process Ego Depletion. Now, over the years, Ballmeister has discovered all sorts of ways to deplete your ego. In one study, college students were divided into three groups. One group had to give a speech supporting raising tuition. Another group was allowed to pick either a speech supporting or being against college tuition. And a third group just proceeded directly to stage two. Now, stage two for all of these groups was to do those puzzles that were impossible to solve. But what he discovered was very strange and uh, unexpected. The... The group that had to choose either for or against performed the worst. They were the people who gave up the soonest. The people who didn't have to pick any speech at all or the people who were just given a speech and said, this is what you're going to do, even though they disagreed with it, they lasted the longest. Ballmeister says the results, they suggest that it wasn't just restraint in the face of desire that can deplete your ego, but any kind of choice at all. The subjects who didn't have to choose a topic, they were able to allow their volition to take a break. And their ego reserves remained intact for the later puzzle test. Another way of seeing this is in another study that they conducted in which they asked people to feel or show no emotions while watching a video that's going to make you feel emotions. Uh, Either they watched a stand-up comedy or they watched an actor who was pretending very convincingly to die of cancer. Another group was allowed to watch those videos and feel whatever they wanted to feel. They weren't told to restrain themselves. So then both groups go on to solve word puzzles, and the scientists want to see how many word puzzles will they solve before they give up and say, look, these are hard. I don't want to do any more of these. And what they discovered was that the people who exerted emotional restraint subsequently solved fewer puzzles than those who let their feelings flow. And it it all comes down to this. A great deal of your thoughts and behaviors are automatic and unconscious, blinking And breathing, for example, they need no help from the conscious part of you. A good chunk of your behavior, such as driving to work or toweling off after a shower, it just happens while your conscious mind drifts off to think about Game of Thrones or how you'll approach your boss for a raise. And if you touch a hot stove, you know, you'll recoil without thought. Your desire to avoid dark alleys and approach embraces, it occurs without your input. When moved by a song or a painting or a kitten, that emotional rush comes without any volition. So much of your mental life is simply just not under your conscious control. And Ballmeister's research suggests that once you do take control, once you do take the helm, every act of volition will then diminish the next. It's like if you imagine a terribly designed experimental spaceship. As long as the ship travels in a straight line, it will burn very little fuel. But as soon as the pilot takes over in any way to dive or bank or to climb, This imaginary spaceship, it will then begin burning fuel at an alarming rate, leaving behind less fuel with which to steer in the future. At some point, you just have to put the ship in autopilot until it can be refueled or it's going to crash. So in this analogy, taking control of the human mind includes making choices, avoiding temptation, suppressing your emotions and suppressing thoughts, or just acting in a way that's deemed appropriate by your culture. Saying no to every naughty impulse, from raiding the refrigerator to skipping class, it requires a little bit of willpower fuel. And once you spend that fuel, it becomes harder to say no in the next time, and the next time. All Ballmeister's research suggests that self-control is a strenuous act. As your ego depletes, your automatic processes get louder, and each successive attempt to take control of your impulses is less successful than the last. Yet, ego depletion is not just the effects of fatigue. Being sleepy or drunk or being in the middle of a meth binge, these things will certainly diminish your ability to resist pie. But what makes ego depletion so weird is that the research suggests that the system can also get worn out just from regular use. Inhibiting and redirecting your own behavior in any way makes it more difficult to delay gratification and persevere in the face of adversity or boredom in the future. Okay. So going back to the beginning, all those students who got hit by the rejection bus, the ones that were told that nobody picked you. And, uh, after listening to the people prattle at the fake party and, uh, feeling that they had been rejected, why couldn't those people keep the, keep the cookies out of their mouths? Well, it seems that ego depletion can go both ways. Getting along with others requires effort and thus Much of what we call pro-social behavior involves the sort of things that deplete the ego. The results of the social exclusion study suggest that when you've been rejected by society, it's as if somewhere deep inside you ask yourself, why keep regulating my behavior if no one cares what I do? The researchers in the No One Chose You study, they proposed that Self-regulation is required to be pro-social. In other words, it takes some of that ego fuel not to rip off your clothes sometimes and run screaming through Walmart because you've been waiting in line for 15 minutes. And what is that person wearing in front of you? And is that a, that, that, I should see a doctor about that. So you see pro-social behavior requires us to be very careful and uh, self-regulate ourselves, to be in control of ourselves. And that volition is something that gets depleted over time. So the people in the unwanted group, they felt a sting of ostracism. And since you've been conditioned over many years to expect some sort of reward for regulating your behavior, when they didn't get that reward, it reframed their self-regulation as being wasteful. It was as if they thought, why play by the rules if no one cares? It, it poked a hole their willpower fuel tanks. And when they sat in front of the cookies, they just could not control their impulses as well as the others could. And other studies have shown that when you feel ostracized in this way, when you feel unwanted, you can't solve puzzles as well. You become less likely to cooperate. You become less motivated to work, more likely to drink and smoke and and do other self-destructive things. Rejection obliterates self-control. And thus it seems it's just one of the many avenues to a weird state of mind, a a bizarre place that we call ego depletion. Okay, so let's let's come to a conclusion here. Now, you look back on all of this and you think about these nutty propositions that were put forth by Freud and you start hearing about mental energy and uh, ego tanks and impulses and cultural judgments that validate the ideas of the id and the ego and the superego and you you wonder what we're talking about here. And that's why it's so difficult to pinpoint what is going on. We don't actually know yet what ego depletion is. We just know that we've observed it. We have evidence of its existence. But what is the what is the model? What is the framework that explains why and how it works? Well, there are sort of two leading ideas right now. One is called the resource model of self-control. And in the resource model of self-control, they say that it's probably glucose. Since the brain uses more glucose than anything else. And since you need glucose to live and since glucose comes from food, then maybe we can see evidence of ego depletion around the times that people need to get something in their body and their belly. And this has been supported by some of the research in 2010 research, uh, into the way judges give out their decisions, both before and after meals showed that in, um, in a case of 1,112 judicial rulings concerning prisoner paroles over the course of 10 months, Right after breakfast and lunch, they found that your chances of getting paroled are at their very highest. On average, judges granted parole to around 60% of prisoners right after that judge had eaten a meal. And the rate of approval creeps down after that. Right before a meal, judges grant parole to about 20% of those appearing before them. So they're saying that, is it maybe because the less glucose that's in the judge's body, that is, the longer they've gone without eating, that they're less willing to make active choices? of setting a person free and accepting the consequences, and they're more likely to go with a passive choice, something that doesn't deplete the ego and put the fate of the prisoner off until a future date. So there are a number of studies that support this glucose model, this uh, resource model of self-control. Um, there's been things you know, where people are they drink Kool-Aid with and without Splenda, people who have had their blood sugar tested before and after doing tests, and there seems to be some evidence to support this. But the idea that glucose is the is the one answer is something that is up for a a debate. It's something that scientists have challenged. And the resource model is, uh, is challenged because the many scientists say you should always have enough glucose in your brain to exert self-control. If you're really low on glucose, there's going to be a lot more problems than just exerting self-control. And they argue that, There must be some other psychological mechanism at play that is governing the release of glucose. And they speculate that the effects are more likely some sort of evolutionarily molded resource allocation program. So once you've completed a task that requires significant self-control, your motivation and attention are manipulated by internal forces to seek rewards for a little while before you can go back to being in control of yourself. So... If an even better prospect emerges or a serious threat looms during this period of time, your motivation will be freed up again so you can press on. So an example of that would be, say you're chasing a deer for an hour and you refuse to give in to the pain in your legs. But once you do slay the beast, you then feel a strong desire to rest and eat. And if a hungry predator appears at that moment, you will forget about relaxation and you'll go back to running. And so this is called the process model of ego depletion. It hypothesizes that although you have the glucose to spend in your body, your brain will become frugal after mental exertion and will dampen your motivation. Reward cues, they will become more salient in your environment and tasks requiring self-control become less attractive. So you'll actually notice and think about things that would be fun and interesting and uh, indulgent more than you would before this uh, state appears inside your mind. But if at that moment the brain becomes highly uh, um, engaged in something that is um, dangerous or important, it becomes really motivated. It will happily use the available glucose. So that's what proponents of the process model say. And in some experiments, subjects are able to stave off ego depletion after just receiving a gift or just a swish of sugar water, uh, just a taste of it or a chance. They're given a chance to engage in a non-boring task if they just proceed. This adds evidence that the reward system of the brain, it plays a significant role in your ego depletion and that glucose is not just the only factor. But look, this is something that we are still studying. Research continues. And for now, the idea of ego depletion is still a metaphor for something more complex and nuanced that is just simply not yet fully understood. Now, this is where we get to what do I do? With this information well here's my suggestion okay despite what the self-help books say the research suggests that willpower is not a skill if it were there would be some sort of consistency from one task to the next instead every time you exert control over the giant system that is you that control gets weaker if you hold back laughter in a church or a classroom every subsequent silly notion is just that much funnier until you run the risk of bursting into snorts. And that sort of scenario can translate to every situation in life. The only way to avoid this state of mind is to predict what might cause it in your daily life and to avoid those things when you need the most volition. Now look, modern life requires more self-control than ever before. Just knowing that Reddit is out there beckoning your browser, or that your iPad is waiting for your caress, or that your smartphone is bursting with status updates, this requires a level of impulse control unique to the human mind. Each abstained vagary strengthens the pull of the next. So remember, you may dampen your executive functions in many ways. You could stay up all night for a few days, you could down a few alcoholic beverages, Or you could hold your tongue at a family gathering or resist the pleas of a child for the umpteenth time. And having an important job can also lead to this sort of decision fatigue. And that may lead to ego depletion simply because big decisions require lots of energy, literally. And when you slump, you will go passive. And also, look, a long day of dealing with any sort of bullshit Will lead to an evening of no decision television in which you don't even feel like switching the channel to get Kim Kardashian's face off your screen. Or you might even watch, uh, uh, if you've ever done this, you know, this is true. You might watch like, uh, censored Goodfellas, and, uh, between commercials as you're watching this movie on television, you think, wait a second, I have the DVD of this movie. It's sitting five feet away from me right over there. Why am I? But look, it's no big deal when you get into a state of mind, this sort of passive flow. But if you find yourself in control of air traffic or a heart bypass, well, then maybe you should think twice. I mean, if you need to lose 200 pounds, this is when you need to plan ahead and think about ego depletion deeply. If you want the most control over your own mind so that you can alter your responses to take the world head on, instead of just giving in and doing what comes naturally, you need to stay fresh Take breaks, get some sleep, and until we understand just what ego depletion actually really is, do not make important decisions on an empty stomach. That is Ego Depletion, an excerpt from my second book, You Are Now Less Dumb, and you can read more about it uh, at a post I put up a while back at youarenotsosmart.com. So also that book, uh, You Are Now Less Dumb in the UK, that is known as You Can Beat Your Brain. It has a different title there. So uh, yes, there's a lot more information in the chapter about Sigmund Freud and the weird stuff that uh, he did as a, uh, as a scientist back in his day. So if you enjoyed that, uh, I hope you can uh, read the rest of it. Now, look, we're going to talk more about cookies and their place in psychological science after we listen to a few messages from our sponsors. Squarespace, it is the website that you go to to make websites. It's an all-in-one platform and it makes it fast. It makes it easy to create your own professional website, whatever that website is going to be. Is it going to be an online store? Is it going to be a portfolio? Is it just going to be a collection of things that you're thinking about right now? You can make it at squarespace.com. Fast, simple, easy, beautiful, drag and drop, and you get 24-7 support through live chat and email. And those people that are supporting you, they're in New York City and they're in Dublin. So, I've built a website. I built several websites using Squarespace. Whenever someone is asking for a website, uh building app or program or service, I always say just go to Squarespace. I mean, they're they're easy, it's simple and um it's what I like the most about it is that it, when you make a change, it immediately appears at the website and they provide you all these templates to get going. But if you have Someone in your life, or you know someone, or you yourself are very good at manipulating code in some way. You can build off of their platform and make some insane, amazing stuff. And you can check out examples of what you can do over at the website. Right now, you can start a trial with no credit card required and just start building a website immediately. And when you sign up for Squarespace, if you use the offer code "less dumb," you will get ten percent off your first purchase. And it shows your support for you are not so smart. We love Squarespace here. We thank Squarespace for their support. And we know that it is true. It is totally true that Squarespace, when they say this, it is absolutely accurate. A better web starts with your website. When we were in college, my wife and I, we, we had no money. We had uh No cable, no, uh, no way to really watch stuff. And we would go to the library and we would get all of those old tapes of, uh, professors doing lectures, stuff that they show you in class that they have at the library that you could rent for free. And we would watch that stuff for fun. We would eat dinner while watching these things. I remember watching the entire series of Philip Zimbardo talking about, uh, psychology and it really, you know, helped get things rolling It's part of why I'm here talking to you today. And that's why I am really excited and happy and pleased and, uh, And just simply, I feel wonderful that The Great Courses is now a sponsor of You Are Not So Smart because The Great Courses creates engaging video and audio lectures that are taught by top professors and experts who are the kind of people who are really passionate in addition to being extremely knowledgeable about the topics that they teach you. And you get these in the form of DVDs or CDs, or you can stream them to your, to your device, and they're just really well made. And also, they're vetted by experts who are making sure that everything the other expert is saying is accurate and up to date. And for a limited time, people listening to You Are Not So Smart can get one of these lectures at 80% off. 80, 80, 8-0, 80% off. And that lecture is something I got to pick, and I picked. Behavioral Economics, When Psychology and Economics Collide by Professor Scott Hutel. And this is a really, really cool thing. I've been watching it and I'm learning so much about things that I am very much interested in. And if if you if you love You Are Not So Smart, this is the one to get, okay? This is the thing you want to take advantage of because this course is about psychology, sociology, neurology, and economics. And it's all about decision making. It's all about how bad people are at making decisions and how it's absolutely not true that we are rational agents who uh, are always have our best interest in mind? Are always trying to maximize our utility. It does away with all of these old notions in both psychology, neuroscience, and economics, and shows you the new research from behavioral economics. And then it gives you practical, powerful tools to make better and more satisfying decisions in your own life based off of real research. To get that course at eighty percent off, just go to thegreatcourses.com/smart. Don't wait; it's going to expire. That's thegreatcourses.com slash smart. Now, what starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that start with C. Uh, uh, who cares about
1: other things? C is for cookie. That's good
0: enough. Oh, it's time for cookies. For On each cookies episode of the You Are Not, so Not So Smart Not podcast, I usually read a piece of self-delusion news or some sort of scientific study while I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader. Now, in the in-between episodes, I don't usually do this, but this is an episode about cookies, so... I am required to eat a cookie. I'm just going to have to do it. Uh, as much as it pains me to eat this delicious cookie I'm holding in my hand, I'm going to do it for you. You can send in your recipes to david at youarenotso smart.com. And if I pick and bake and eat your recipe, you will get a signed copy of You Are Now Less Dumb or You Are Not So Smart. I also post the recipe and the winner and photos and everything else. At youarenotsosmart.com, as well as the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. And this time, this cookie it comes from Jenny Bergstrom, and she wrote in her email, "In honor of the recent episode about dreams, here is a cookie recipe that came to me in a dream. The name Myrick was part of the dream, and as far as I know, it's not a word or name that I'm familiar with in any way. So I have no idea where it came from. In the dream, the cookies were made with vegetable scraps." But I uh, used grated carrots instead. So this is the cookie I have it in my hand. We made this cookie. My wife, Amanda, she makes the cookies for the show. And she said that um, the cookies are uh, the, 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 the texture of the batter, um, the, um, the, uh, the cookie dough, it was like pudding. And, uh, after they were made, they were very moist. And so she said they were bizarre, that this is a weird thing. Somebody thought of this in their dreams, everyone. So obviously it's going to be odd. The ingredients from the dream world are flour, oats, ginger, baking soda, cinnamon, cloves, uh, salt, margarine, sugar, carrots, molasses, cardamom, kosher salt. And I can tell you, I was worried I was worried that these cookies were just going to be bleh, because I, I've dreamt things before that I uh, want to eat and uh, don't. And I've also, um, you know, when you come up with ideas like this from some sort of strange uh, dream world place, it can be kind of like when you come home from a night of drinking and you're like, I don't know, you know, Doritos dipped in uh, in honey mustard could be good right now. A sandwich, just one have, Dorito honey mustard bread sandwich. This though is not that thing. This actually is an amazing cookie. This is a cookie that smells so good. As these were being baked, the in, I could smell them from uh, the other side of uh, of the house and they were like, oh, someone's making something great. And I'm going to try this right now. Here we go. A cookie from the dream world straight to my mouth and then delivered through the power of technology to your ears. Here we go. I'm going, this, this is something that was in someone else's head in their dreams. And now it's going to go in all of our heads right now. Here we go. Oh my God. Hmm boy. Dream world time. I awake from my slumber and I realize this is what? You dreamt this? Mm. Oh man Okay This is, first of all it tastes like, um it has the texture of cake um the outside is cookie-like and it holds its cookie, um consistency you know and when you pick it up but as soon as you bite into it just moist cakeness happens oh moist cakeness in my mouth okay the taste is both cinnamon cookie and ginger cookie combined in a dream matrix i feel like for the food for the true dream experience i should take off my pants because a lot of my dreams involve me being pantsless um Not so much eating cookies while pantsless, but usually um, delivering speeches. Or um, I'm back in school and I didn't study for the test, and also I have no pants on. Uh, But I can tell you that with pants on, with this cookie in the in the in the privacy of this room, though I am in private, I am wearing pants. That this is great. This cookie is so good. Um, I don't know what to make of it. I mean, there are several things happening here. You've got the molasses and the carrots. You've got the cinnamon. And you've got the ginger and it's all, it's like, you know, how in a dream you'll be sitting there playing poker and then Snuffleupagus will come along and he'll say, come with me, David. And I'm sure he won't call you David, but sometimes they do. And then you follow Snuffleupagus and you end up skiing with him on the, on the slopes of the Alps. And while you're in midair, you sprout wings and you fly and you end up going to a golden palace where everything is made of gold and glass. And then someone breaks off a piece of the golden glass and hands it to you and actually you can bite it yourself and eat it and it tastes pretty good like a dozer from the fraggles and then as you're eating it the ground beneath you opens and you slide down um some sort of water slide and all of a sudden you're with your family that you don't recognize and you're on some sort of vacation and whenever you're at the vacation you sit down to have a a picnic dinner with everyone and dad unrolls the uh the the red and white checkered a tablecloth and he sets out the basket and he pulls in the basket and he pulls out this cookie. This cookie is what's in that basket. This is a dream cookie, everyone. And I expect you, I, I, I implore you to believe in your dream cookie and eat your dream cookie with me. Oh man. Uh, one more bite. Dream cookies. I believe I am awake and I'm dreaming. Thanks to this cookie. Oh, oh, Thank you, Jenny Bergstrom. Oh my God. What, what, what were you eating or drinking or uh, taking uh, by prescription before you had this dream of amazing cookies? Whatever it is, do it again. See if something else comes out of that head of yours. Ah, because I like this one. Oh, thank you, Jenny Bergstrom for an insane, amazing cookie experience. Now let's talk about some experiences with cookies in the world of psychology. Yes, cookies have been used in many psychological experiments. I could have uh, found more than just these few I'm going to tell you about, but um, these are some of my favorites. And uh, this first one, it comes from an experiment in 2005, Hank Arts at the Utrecht University. He had subjects fill out a questionnaire, and then they were rewarded with a cookie. And one group sat in a room filled with the faint smell of cleaning products, while another smelled nothing. Now, the group that was sitting in the room with the aroma of clean smells, the uh, cleaning product room, they, uh, when they ate this cookie, see both groups ate a cookie and it crumbled everywhere, little, little pieces went everywhere. They made sure that the cookies were very crumbly. In the room that had the crumbly cookie uh, with the faint smell of cleaning products, people were more likely to clean up after themselves than in the room that didn't have that smell. And uh, they actually were three times more likely to clean up after themselves. So it's an example of priming. Um, these people had been primed to think about, and they were just, you know, the associative architecture of our minds, the, uh, the way that memories are connected to one another and experiences activate memories. They just simply were in a, these people had a mind that was more primed to think about being clean and think about how the room had been cleaned. And so they looked down and saw this crumbly cookie, and they were three times more likely than people who didn't smell that. clean up after themselves another piece of uh psychological insight that comes to us through the power of the crumbly cookie you also may be aware of walter mitchell he uh did experiments at stanford in the 60s and 70s in which he had his researchers they would bargain with children and these children would sit in front of you've probably seen the experiment done with a marshmallow but in the real experiment they didn't just use giant marshmallows they also used cookies and pretzels. Um, And so these kids, they would be, they would sit in front of a cookie and you've heard this called the marshmallow test, but we can just call it the cookie test for today. Um, And they were told that uh, they could either eat that delicious, fantastic cookie right away, or they could wait a few minutes. If they waited a few minutes, then they would get another cookie just like that one. But if they couldn't wait, they were supposed to ring a bell And then a researcher would come in and they would say, okay, the experiment's over and they get to eat the cookie. So this is a very famous experiment now because what it revealed was that uh, the kids who ate the cookie right away, who didn't wait, who couldn't wait to um, get the second cookie later on, they were tracked throughout the course of their lives. And these were people who, um, the people who ate the cookie right away, they'd usually had, uh, more debt. They had, um, They would default on loans more often. They would have more divorces. They'd be more likely to go to jail. They would receive less education and they would um, not make as much money. Uh, They basically had a life filled with um, the results of not being able to delay gratification. And it wasn't uh, that they were just simply some kids were better at um, controlling themselves than others. What the research showed was that the kids who didn't eat the cookie – Were able to come up with strategies to avoid even thinking about it. They would turn away from the cookie. They would slap their faces. They would bang the table. They would sing songs themselves. That sort of thing. They they knew they weren't strong enough to not eat the cookie, so they came up with a way to um, keep themselves from facing that temptation. Whereas the other kids, they would just like they'd like stare at the cookie and smell it and lick it, uh, maybe take little tidbits of it, and then enough of that. After just a little bit of doing that, boom, they eat the cookie. So that's another piece of very famous research. It's often called the marshmallow test if you want to look it up online and see videos of, of kids doing it. But they, in the real experiment, they also used cookies. And then the last experiment I want to tell you about, this one's, it's uh, it's weird. But uh, in 2003, uh, some researchers got together and they um, the, experiment, the the lead uh, experimenter is Dasher Keltner. And in 2003, they got together and what they did is they took people and they put them in groups of three. Uh, And randomly, they would assign two people to be the workers and one person to be the boss. And the workers had to write these uh, short essays and the boss had to evaluate the essay and decide how much money the other two people would get paid for writing the essay in the experiment. And it was totally random. Uh, It could have been Anyone could have been the boss in the situation, but that's just how the numbers rolled in this particular instance uh, each time. And so after uh, they had been working on this for about 30 minutes, the researchers would come in and say, hey, thanks for all the hard work you're doing. Here's some cookies. And they would bring them a plate of cookies that had exactly five cookies on it. And the researchers did not expect anyone would eat the fifth cookie because generally speaking, uh, if you have like, you know, you've seen this at a party, if you have pizza or any other kind of uh, um, item that people get one at a time out of it. As far as food goes, no one gets the last thing. And sometimes you do, you know, but oftentimes getting the last piece makes you look, um, greedy and gluttonous for whatever reason. Now you might eat a hundred, you know, pieces of pizza or a hundred uh, cookies before the last one, but you don't get the last one that makes you a glutton. So in this study, they knew that there were five cookies on, on the plate and there was a fifth one nobody would get, and in the research, nobody actually got the fifth one. But that fourth cookie—that's the extra cookie because there's three people, so that's one cookie a piece, and then one extra cookie for somebody. And what they thought would happen is that uh, they, hypoth- they hypothesized that the the boss would always get that extra cookie. And yes, indeed, that is what usually happened. More often than not, the person playing the role of the boss would also go ahead and get that extra cookie. They felt entitled to it. And it's crazy because this was just a random assignment of, uh, of roles. But as soon as you start playing that role, you start fulfilling it. And sure enough, boss people would eat that extra cookie. And not only would they eat it, they also tended to, and this is the funniest part of it. They say in the research that they would eat it with their mouths open a lot of the time and then they would let it, uh, just sort of fall on their, on their, the crumbs just kind of fall on them. Uh, as if to say like, I don't even have to be polite in front of you people. I can eat this however I want, (laughs) like the cookie monster. (laughs) So look, cookies, they reveal so much about our minds, about why we are the way we are and how we are that way. And psychology is always coming up with new ways to play around with cookies. And I thank you for this Myrick cookie from the dream world, which I am now going to eat and enjoy and be delighted in. Thank you so much. Oh, that is it for this episode of the you are not so smart podcast go to boing for more great podcasts like this one go to you are not smart.com soundcloud stitcher or itunes to listen to all the previous episodes of this podcast and you can find links to everything that i talked about today at you are smart.com in the show notes for this episode you can also learn more about both of my books and if you send me a cookie recipe and i make that cookie i will send you a signed copy of one of those books Follow You Are Not So Smart on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, Plus, and on Twitter, it's at NotSmartBlog. And I am at David McCraney. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. And all the musics that are under the, the pieces, the music beds, those are by Drew Garraway.
1: And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S.